hopefully as any kind of designer or or professional in the design professions, you are trying to understand communities and you are often going into or doing work for communities that may look and feel very different from communities that you've lived in or spent time in. How do you then match your skills with the lived experience and the knowledge that's in a place? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Lisa Servan, Penn Presidential Professor and Chair of City and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania. Lisa joins us today to discuss her research on the unbanked and the underbanked and the financial divide in America's retail banking system. Lisa, welcome. Hey, Charles. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you. Um, now, I think many of us, I certainly was really, really taken um, by this book that you published a couple of years back called The Unbanking of America, in which you sort of unpacked, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, well over a, a quarter of Americans, um, you know, occupied this other, uh, this other kind of parallel uh, retail banking uh, system. Um, and I, I'm interested to know, how is it you got into that um, line of research, like what, what as, a, as a planning academic and as a, somebody who'd done research on a range of topics, um, how was it that the, the kind of retail banking system and its uh, shadow sector became of interest to you? You know, I think as academics, we're lucky that we get to mostly wake up in the morning and answer the kind of questions that we want to answer. And uh, instead of having somebody give us a question and say, answer this question or do this job, and Many of the questions that I have tried to answer in my career have been have kind of come up in interesting ways. And um, I, uh, I was putting a couple things together when when this kind of research plan came to me. One was just looking at the, um, the FDIC survey of banked and underbanked households and looking at the um, the data, which, as you said, there's about 8% of Americans have no bank account whatsoever, and about another 20% um, are what's called underbanked, meaning they have a bank account, but they also use check cashers and payday lenders and pawn shops. Uh, and it was interesting to me. I think a lot of the writing around those findings was, wow, we need to get people into bank accounts, right? Like, here's, here's a piece of data. Here's the solution or what we should do about it. And we knew that a lot of those people were low-income people. Um, and a lot of the writing about it was that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing because it's so expensive. It's expensive to use a check casher. It's expensive to, use a, to get a payday loan. Banks are much cheaper. Um, so I was kind of noodling on that because doing, having done a lot of work in low-income neighborhoods, my feeling, my understanding of how people operate is that they actually know where their money is going, um, probably more than those of us who can afford to keep a few thousand dollars in a bank account and maybe pay a late fee every now and then, um, and that there must be a different reason. The implication, I think, in, the, in a lot of the writing was that they, they didn't know enough. They were ignorant or didn't have the right information to make the quote-unquote right decision of using a bank. So I was kind of thinking about that, and then I was teaching a course in which I had this um, gentleman who runs a chain of check cashing stores come and speak to my students. And we were all loaded for bear. You know, we'd read about predatory uh, check cashing and the financial services. And this man, um, Joe Coleman, 
came and really talked to us about what his customers valued and that he felt like he was providing a service and um, talked a little bit about too how his customers were discriminated in the banking sector. And that just got me scratching my head. So long story short, I ended up um, really thinking about this and, and recognizing that nobody had really asked people who were quote unquote unbanked or underbanked why. Um, and I wanted to do that. And I felt like I would get a better answer to that question if I got as close to the problem as I could. And so I think, you know, for anybody who's listening, who is a researcher or a designer or a planner, you know, you have to match the question to the method of finding it out. And that's what led me to do this ethnography where I worked as a teller at Joe's store, actually one of Joe's stores. I called him up several months later and said, would you hire me as a teller? And, um, and then at a payday lender in, in Oakland, California. So that's kind of the long story of how I got into it and how I chose that method to, to try to answer the question. I was struck by, uh, I wonder if you'd agree with this characterization, well, it's not a sympathetic portrait of this industry and the people that engage in these uh, in, in these um, in, in in these businesses, which you liken to kind of like a chain of dry cleaners or some other kind of you know retail franchise. I'm struck by the the relative empathy or the kind of fair mindedness that the book uh, approaches the topic with. Is that something that you brought? to the research to begin with? Did you go in thinking, well, this hasn't been dealt with in a kind of even-handed way? Or was that something that you discovered along the way? You know, I think I was, um, I think I was trying to be as open-minded as possible. And, you know, we, as researchers, we're always told to be objective. I think it's really hard. <laughs> it's an ideal to strive for, but in reality, it's very hard. We all have opinions. We all have biases and assumptions. Certainly, I had read much more that vilified these kinds of businesses than praised them. Um, but I think I, because I worked at the places, and, and this is interesting methodologically, too, just thinking about I did do hundreds of interviews with people as well who were customers of these businesses, but I think working behind that um, bulletproof glass day after day for a period of months gave me an understanding of why people were doing managing their money the way that they were that I would not have gotten just by talking to them. And also I got to see how the business itself worked um, and I got trained like an employee would get trained. And so it helped me to see it in a more, I guess what, you know, to use your word, Charles, empathetic way um, and to recognize that people, for the most part, they were making rational choices given the choice set that they had, right? So I think that oftentimes the popular press work that you're talking about, and there hadn't really been, there is some academic literature on this, but there hadn't been much at the time that was really getting down on the, on the ground and doing the nitty gritty work. Um, it, it, kind of assumed that people uh, were making the wrong choices or that they didn't know what they were doing. And what I found was that people often did and that their choice sets were bad and uh, or, or not, not the same as say mine was. And I think that's a danger. Um, it's one of the reasons, you know, to take a little bit of a tangent, why I really try to recruit a broad range of students into our program at Penn because um, people bring different insights from their lives into the classroom, the same way all decision makers do. And you kind of need to see why people are acting the way that they do, rather than assuming that they're looking at the problem from the perspective you have. And for me, as a white middle class, highly educated woman, even going into that situation um, day to day, there were things that I missed that I needed other tellers to explain to me because I wasn't seeing it myself or some transaction would happen and I would scratch my head and say, like, why would this person do that? It seems like they're wasting money. 
Um, so yeah, my eyes were opened a lot by, by doing the work in this way. I was struck in the account how you describe um, growing up in New Jersey and going with uh, with your with your father, if I have a right, to the to the Saturday errands, the barber shop, and uh, that resonated with me uh, personally. Growing up in in Orlando, Florida, it was more often than not a, a Friday visit to the the big marble bank mm-hmm. downtown to cash a check. And as you say, there was a kind of a very personable, a very kind of uh, familial kind of retail relationship there. Um, and of course, since that time, both in your life and in my life, uh, we've seen the financialization of every aspect of American life, not to, not to say just retail uh, banking. Um, I wonder if um, your experience of going behind the glass, as you say, um, you know, did it, um, did it change the way that you think of or approach other topics? Uh, or maybe another way of approaching that would be, had you gone in a way, um, you know, behind the glass in other research projects before? I mean, taking a job for several months in the South Bronx or in Oakland, California strikes me as quite both a commitment, but also a very particular methodological point of view. Is that something that you had engaged before uh, in your research? I had, I mean, my research is mostly qualitative, although I often partner with quantitative researchers, including in some of the work that's in the book. Um, I worked with folks at MDRC on a big data set that one of the payday lending folks gave me. And, you know, we, we both did quantitative analysis and we did a lot of interviews. Um, but I think it goes back to that thinking about like, how do you match the question with the method? And uh, in this way, you know, I couldn't become, uh, I couldn't become a check cashing customer in a way that would be authentic because, you know, I, I don't, it's actually economically rational for me to use a bank. Right. Um, although one of my research assistants did participate in a rotating savings and credit association, and I have a chapter in the book on these informal mechanisms that people often use to manage their money. Um, she was, she is Mexican, and so a lot of these groups, if if listeners haven't heard about them, are um, groups that operate in particular uh, communities, often immigrant communities, and so it was easier for her to to get access to that group being. Um, a native Mexican than it was for me to join. Uh, so we did that. But before that, I hadn't really done it. Um, and now, you know, it's interesting. I'm currently doing on a, lo- a lot of work on financial justice and the financialization of the criminal justice system. And I have thought briefly about becoming a bail bonds person or working as a prison guard, but I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I can do that. So I've been working closely with a lot of reentry organizations and in prisons. But I, you know, I think. Um, I tend to trust my findings and my research the most when I can get as close to an issue as possible. And, uh, and I was really fortunate, I think, to be able to be hired by both of these organizations. I should, I should clarify for people that I was not um, undercover. The, both of the, the organizations knew that I was doing research, but I did work uh, and get trained and have to pass screening tests and things like any other employee. Whereas your, your student could presumably, um, you know, code switch and go there, not as a graduate student, yeah. but rather as a civilian, right? She could, she could navigate that divide in a way that you, you couldn't occupy that same space. But yeah, it is important to note uh, for our listeners that, in fact, you went in the front door. Um, I, I, I yeah. can only imagine what that conversation would have been, would have been like. Um, um, tell us about just the, 
the late, let's say the labor conditions for people working there, um, like what kinds of hours, this is presumably, you know, non-unionized, non-organized labor, presumably it's hourly work, um, you know, did people stay on the job long? I mean, we're of course now in 2021 talking about the chronic, you know, so-called quote shortage of, you know, kind of unskilled labor at certain price points. And I just wonder about the, the day-to-day conditions of doing that work and what you saw there. Yeah, well, I think it was a little bit different at both places. Um, And interestingly, when I showed up in the South Bronx to do an orientation and was kind of around a table with other, most of my coworkers were women in both places. Uh, So I was around the table with other women who were starting their jobs. And there was a slideshow uh, sort of going through the rules and regulations and there were photos in it. And a couple of times during the slideshow, uh, women around the table would say like, oh, that's my cousin. Or, you know, they would recognize people who were current employees. And I noted that that was, uh, you know, something that 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 place called Right Check in the South Bronx in Harlem did was that they, they recognized that their own employees were often the best referrals for new employees. Um, the women I worked with there, most had been there for 10 years or more. They'd been there and, and they had regular shifts. You know, they had kind of a regular 40-hour work week most of the time. Although, um, you know, they had the place was open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So somebody had to work the graveyard shift. Um, somebody had to work on Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's Day. Um, you know, that's true for a lot of industries, right? Um, even things like medicine. So I feel like people were treated and paid pretty well and had decent benefits there. Um, I saw more um, turnover at the payday lending place in Oakland, California, and also some examples of people say, you know, uh, there was a strip mall where we interviewed people at one point and a woman kind of changing from her, um, her payday loan polo to her, um, Radio Shack polo and going a few doors down to work a second shift. I think that's more of a comment on the changing nature of work um, and something I've done a little bit of research on in the last year, just how many people are working more than one job. Uh, And so, and trying to balance this shift work in more than one place. But in terms of the working conditions themselves, I I would say that um, I felt well-treated and I felt as though they were, they were good. I'm interested in the um, the particular geographies you've mentioned: uh, Harlem, the South Bronx, Oakland. Um, are we right in thinking of these as you know particular um, particular to uh, the the you know, people living and working in poverty, the working poor in the inner city, or does this economy exist outside of the city itself? It exists outside the city. I think there's a lot of different state by state. So payday lenders are outlawed in many states, although, you know, the fastest growing portion of that business is online. And if, say, I'm in Pennsylvania right now talking to you and um, payday lending is illegal, but I could go online and get a payday loan pretty quickly. Um, So, and it's very hard to, um, it's very hard to monitor that kind of activity. So there, you know, when we've done surveys, we found people getting payday loans in all 50 states. So there's that part of it. I think you also see the geography play out in terms of even where in a city that places are located. So you'll find more alternative financial services providers in lower income neighborhoods and fewer banks in those neighborhoods. And I think sometimes people think that's where the story stops, right? We just need to build more banks in low income neighborhoods. But obviously if people feel they're not being treated well, 
in um, in banks, they're not going to go there anyway. Or if they feel like it's cheaper for them to use a check casher or a payday lender, they're still going to make those choices. And I, you know, you start noticing things when you do any kind of research. And I definitely noticed uh, at the time I was living in Brooklyn and noticed a block not too far from my neighborhood where there was a Chase branch and a check casher right on the same block. So um, you you see that all the time too. And clearly both of them were were doing business. I was struck, Lisa, in the account of the extent to which people were making, you know, rational decisions, but let's say bounded in the context of information that they had available and the constraints that they're working under. That is, these are people that are often, you know, working, you know, week to week, month to month, uh, managing to move cash through various services to be able to pay bills and meet various obligations. And I was struck both with the kind of empathy of the portrayal, but also the the sense of these are rational actors in part, because many mm-hmm. of these fees and charges, while they may be as a percentage of the overall transaction quite exorbitant, as individual line items, they were knowable. And there's something about my, my experience in retail banking. I'm, I'm fortunate enough, as you are, to, to not be, you know, on that side of the financial divide. I can have a proper bank account, let's say, in the kind of kind of normal or, or uh, let's say, formal system. But at the same moment, I, I wonder if, um, if there's any analogy to be drawn here between that um, the kind of opacity of those fees and processes and the kind of opacity we see in student loans or in healthcare pricing. I mean, it strikes me that your account about the the actual cost of these uh, retail banking services and and how obscure they can be and how, uh, in fact, the banking system has gone to great lengths to both optimize their billions and billions of dollars of profit from it annually and these other sectors of the economy. And and of course, you know, we could mention others, but certainly, you know, student loans and, and the the recent conversation around transparency around uh, you know healthcare pricing come to mind. Are there parallels there that are valuable or interesting from your point of view? I think absolutely. I, I mean, I think you know whenever you have a for-profit organization that is that's primary mission is to maximize profits, you see things like that. Now, regulation does play a role. So, you know, there's something called the disclosure agreement that you sign when you open a checking account. We've all signed them. Most of us, like most disclosure agreements that pop up on our phones or our laptops, we do not read them. (laughs) Um, You know, so we kind of scroll to the bottom and sort of think like, well, if there was a real problem, somebody would have told me or I would have seen it in the New York Times or whatever we get our, and we just click agree. Um, So, and that's true for a lot of industries. but transparency was one of the three things that people, you know, there were kind of three things that people talked about when I asked them why they used alternative financial services. One was cost, and it was that they were paying less than they would at a bank. One was transparency, and one was the kind of service that they got. So on the transparency front, absolutely. And I think I just did some work recently with um Mina Addo, one of my recently graduated doctoral students on people who uh, had income volatility and we were talking to them about how they paid for healthcare, for example. And one of the things that we realized was that most of the people that we talked to had insurance of some kind. And yet um, the insurance almost created more uncertainty. So if you think about like, what is the definition of insurance, even the word, it's to ensure that you're covered. Um, and we found that there was, it was so opaque and so uh, hard to understand what would be covered and not. So somebody is able to like get the machine that helps them take their blood sugar for, di- for diabetes, but not the test strips, right? And the fact that they can't get the test strips covered means that they're only going to do it every 
six months when they go to the doctor instead of every week like they should. So we found example after example of, of that kind of opacity. And, you know, I guess if I were sinister, I would say it's almost designed to be opaque. Um, so, you know, I talked about regulation. Um, regulation in the banking sector means that banks are required to give all of this information out that none of us read. But I also think that it could be clearer. One of the things I talked about was putting some of that most important information up front in, say, a one-page disclosure agreement, where the rest of it is kind of an appendix, but where you know when it is that an overdraft fee will be charged and uh, how many days it's going to take to clear your check. Those are the kinds of things that really kept people from using banks in many occasions because they didn't know when the check would clear. And if they didn't know, they didn't want to take the risk because then they would be late on a bill and be slapped with a late fee that would be more than they were paying to cash their check. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of that. And I think um, it goes back to this changing nature of work question too and income volatility in that so many people are really living close to the edge right now. And that was, I'd, I'd say, one of the most eye-opening um, findings from this research, particularly when I was at the payday lender, was that this was not just low-income people who were experiencing these issues, that it was a lot of people that we would think of and who think of themselves as middle class who just had no margin, who were really living paycheck to paycheck. And we're seeing more and more of that. Um, we're seeing that's why people are working these two jobs oftentimes. And so there was no, there was no buffer, you know, to be able to wait a couple of days or to know that if you paid something that it would that would be covered. So you have all these people who are really trying to make things work. And then if they have one emergency, whether it's a medical emergency or something else, everything gets thrown off. How have things changed in the past four years? Are things getting better or worse in terms of the percentage of the American middle class that are relying upon these institutions? It's, it's gotten a tiny bit better, but I want to say maybe like one percentage point um, in the in the right quote unquote right direction, but for the most, it's it's been pretty um, stable. Those those percentages of people who are either have no bank account or are using banks and other alternative financial services providers. And so a new a new form and a new kind of middle mm -hmm. class is that fair? I think um, you know, I mean I'm interested to um, you know return to your account in terms of the way that so many people that were working multiple jobs and they were, as you say, one crisis, whether it was a, you know, a healthcare cost or an automobile repair or an appliance or some other unforeseen expense. Um, so many of these people were really time stressed, right? They didn't have the luxury of three days to wait for the check to clear until Tuesday. They, they had to commute to the second job. And then often that produced a set of spatial challenges. And so in that, in that regard, I'm, I'm interested know something about the the temporal dimension of this right so you, you were working in these places in the south bronx and oakland it was kind of you know places that are classical kind of populations that are you know kind of financially stressed in the inner city and i wonder if you could say something more about the the geography beyond that uh, clearly people are working multiple jobs they're commuting in various ways and it strikes me that while you were you know working behind the plexiglass in these two very particular locations there's quite a lot about the American city more broadly that we could uh, we could glean from that. Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting question. And some of it I feel like was, in terms of my findings, was these 
small things that I may not have noticed if I wasn't doing the research the way I was, which gets back to your question about methodology. So at the check cashing um, place, for example, um, people could also buy a Metro card, which is what you use for the subway in New York City. They could buy stamps. They could buy um, lottery cards. Unfortunately, um, the lottery machine was horrible. I never really figured out how to use it. Um, but so I would see people doing things that I would never do, like buying a Metro card for two, with two rides on it, right? Whenever I'm in New York, I always put, you know, 25 bucks on my card so I don't have to stand in line. And so if I'm in a hurry, I can get through. I don't, most people I know have never bought one stamp at a time, right? So, you know, so that's people that are, you know, you have that 25 cents or you um, so there's, there's that, that, uh, but also, which on the one hand is showing that they're, they have more time than money on in, in, or they have to trade time for money in the sense of like, they'll come every day or every week and get that Metro card for two rides. Cause they don't have the money for four rides or 20 rides for the week. Um, I also saw people sometimes coming in and say, pay, paying the dollar 50 to pay their rent. So folks could pay a bill through us electronically. You come with your check, you get cash minus the $2 fee to cash your check. And then you could say, um, put this toward my rent and put this toward my cable bill or whatever. Um, and they would maybe pay that $1.50 instead of the $4 that it would pay to go pay it in person because they would have to take the bus or the subway there. So there's that element. Um, I often went to a Dunkin' Donuts in the morning right after, you know, I'd get out of the subway and try to time my commute to the check cashing store so that I would get there early enough to be on time and go to this Dunkin' Donuts. And almost everybody who worked there was Southeast Asian. And, you know, I'm just the kind of person who will talk to cab drivers and other people and find out there was not a, high, a, a very large Southeast Asian population in that part in the Mahaven section of the South Bronx, but they were all coming from Queens. So, you know, just thinking about those kinds of things in relation to the city and the, the, the geographic aspect of it. Um, I think sometimes people will go to a payday loan store that's not in their neighborhood because they don't want to be recognized. Although at a check cashing store, it feels more like a community institution. Um, so there's that, there are these different, um, different relationships, I think, between these businesses and the places that they're located in. You mentioned that there was not so much um, disciplinary literature, at least in, 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 uh, in, in urban design, urban planning, uh, with respect to the kind of financial services sector. Um, of course, there's been quite a lot of research, quite a lot of literature with respect to the so-called informal economies, uh, particularly the idea of uh, literature of Latin America and you know, putting informal, you know, kind of uh, deeds together and organizing, you know, micro lending. There's been so much information about that in the past several decades. Um, is it reasonable or interesting to think about your work as bringing to the American city a topic that we've explored in other contexts, or is it really just a completely different topic here? No, I think there's a lot of similarities. And, you know, in my own dissertation research decades ago was about microenterprise programs in the U.S. So I looked at some of that micro lending and, um, and it, the context is very different, I think. Um, whereas, it, especially for micro lending, it just, you know, without going too, too far down that road, it takes a, it, there's a lot of a different regulatory um, and, and legal environment to start a business here than there is in other places. And yet, there's still a, a microfinance industry here. Um, 
But I do think particularly looking at the informal financial services networks that I studied, that there's a lot there. And it's, uh, I, it could be that it's kind of shining a light on that that's, uh, that hasn't been shined so far. A lot of these rotating service, um, savings and credit associations, people are bringing them from other places. Um, and what I found, I had actually a doctoral student when I was teaching at the new school who looked at workplace-based um, with the shorthand term for these or the acronym is ROSCAs, where people who didn't know each other before and only had maybe a workplace connection, they worked in a hospital or they worked in a university, um, were doing these informal savings groups like these more immigrant-focused ones. I think another thing that I found that was really fascinating was, you know, I, I think going into the research, I thought about kind of mainstream financial services and, it, and these alternative financial services and being pretty separate. Um, and coming out of the research, I sort of added this third sphere of informal financial services. And, you know, if I were to draw a diagram, it would be three overlapping circle, circles. And so, for example, this woman that my research assistant and I met in the South Bronx who ran a few of these circles would get the money from people and put it in her bank account. So she was she was using the mainstream financial services system to enable her informal savings group. And so seeing the way that those things intersected and that a lot of the customers at the check cashing store were in all three of them in one way or another. Um, even the, the geographical, the ge geographic part of that rotating savings and credit association, there were people who lived all over the city and either in a, even in a couple of different states who would um, wire the money to her account from out of state. So there was a group that dropped off the money at her apartment, but there were also people who lived farther away um, and they trusted her more than they trusted other people. I was struck by, um, on the one hand, how, um, how material the economy uh, was and presumably still is on the one hand. You, you describe the bulletproof glass, um, you describe the check that comes in, uh, the cash that goes out minus the fee, uh, and then um, patrons, you know, looking to see which bills they can pay and purchasing a money order and, uh, you know, put, put, putting, uh, putting money as they could do against their expenses. And there's something about it that is both specifically um, to the, the space, the, the community or the kind of sociality, let's say, of this, of this space, but also about the materiality of it. It's still an economy, as you describe it, which is overwhelmingly material, at least on the retail face of it. And I wonder how, I, I know you've been doing more recent work on the cashless economy and the kind of rapid acceleration of a, what seems to be an increasingly digital set of transactions, especially in the context of COVID. Um, how have things changed in that regard? Um, obviously, you know, uh, the, the shift away from cash and toward a purely digital economy will have big implications, especially for people living in poverty. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, we in the United States, we use more checks um, than any other country. We're still very check dependent compared with other places. And I that I, I'm sure that's changing. Um, I mean, it is changing and it's changing pretty quickly. Uh, it's interesting to, and I think some of that will, some of that will change because of the pressures and some of it will change generationally. I, I tell a story in the book about when people would often opt to get their social security check sent to the check cashing store because it would come through electronically and it would show up faster than it would if it was mailed to their house. And they would start calling a few, you know, when they thought they might be in and just saying, are the checks here yet? Are the checks here yet? 
um, you know, the government is trying to get people to get all of those sorts of benefits electronically, but there are people who, who are resisting. And I would say mostly, mostly they're older Americans. So there will be that change that kind of happens naturally. Um, you know, nobody, uh, it was interesting when I, um, when I, when I first was going around doing book talks and I would go into an audience and say, how many of you, um, use Venmo and everybody under 30 would raise their hands and everybody else over 30 would say like, what's Venmo? And now I'm assuming that everybody, most of the people who are listening use Venmo, even those of us who are um, over 40 and over 50, uh, because it's just seeped into the culture. It becomes almost necessary. So I, I think that's going to be happening more and more. Um, I, I don't, you know, there's still the informal economy is still alive and well though in, in a lot of places. And so it'll be interesting to see how people, whether and how people adapt to that. I know there's, you know, there are cities that are grappling whether with whether it's okay to have cashless businesses or not. There's still a lot of people, especially at the lower end of the socioeconomic system that are working mostly in cash. Um, and, and so I, it's changing, but I don't know how quickly it'll change. Explain for our audience the relationship in your mind between the the kind of financial services sector that we've been describing, and the um, you know the incarceration of of uh, you know this incredible percentage of our American population. There's a lot going on. I mean, I think you mentioned Charles before financialization of everything. <laughs> so uh, financialization of the criminal justice system is one of those things, and also financialization of municipal government. Right. So those two trends have happened. Uh, about at the same time as mass incarceration beginning in the 1980s with the war on drugs. And uh, so we see those happening concurrently and the way that they've affected people. So we know that there's a lot more people in prison than there used to be. Um, anybody who followed the whole Ferguson story knows that the Department of Justice report that came out after that showed that Ferguson was funding its um, municipal coffers through traffic traffic tickets, et cetera. So there's a lot of financialization that goes on in terms of the levying of fines and fees without people going to prison. Um, but it still creates, it both extracts wealth, particularly from poor communities and, and communities of color. And um, it creates this relationship between the city and the citizen of debtor and creditor, which is interesting, right? It's not exactly like the citizen is taking out a loan, but it puts that creates the situation in which the person is owing. And uh, there are a lot more ways, a lot more kinds of fines and fees uh, that have been tacked on uh, over the last, say, 30 years. Um, then, you know, there's been privatization of the, of the prison system so that, you know, probably most listeners are familiar with the fact that it costs a lot to make a phone call or, or stay in touch with a loved one. Um, and that there's all kinds of fines and fees that you pay when you get out. You have to pay your parole officer and you um, often owe restitution. And so you have this really two-tiered system when people get out of those who are able to pay and are done with their sentence. But then the second sentence for people who are unable to pay of owing. And, you know, the case of Florida is one that many people probably know about where Florida um, made it allowable for people with a criminal record to vote but only if they had paid off all their fines and fees. And most people have not. 
they've paid off all their fines and fees and never will. So, um, so I'm really looking at, at that and the way that that's been used. Um, and I'm also looking deeply into gender issues as well. The population of women incarcerated has grown much, much faster than the population of men. Uh, and women are less able to pay and have more needs given their role as caregivers. So, um, so it's a lot of those relationships between financialization, mass incarceration, and, um, and citizenship. I mean, the other piece of this is something that Fred Wary from Princeton calls financial citizenship. So there's now this kind of need, um, people like you and I, Charles, will probably remember that credit scores themselves are a relatively new invention. Anybody who's younger, you know, you know about your credit score and whether it's good or bad, and you know you need to make it, make it good, but it's very hard to operate in society without a good credit score now. That's something that didn't exist a long time ago. And I've been working all summer with a group of women in reentry in uh, Germantown, which is a neighborhood in Philadelphia. And when we go to get their credit score, credit reports, um, we often find that they've been victims of identity theft. So, you know, when you're locked up, it's really easy to use somebody's social security number and address, um, that there's a lot of stuff on their credit reports that's not true. It takes will find if they don't have I, the ID that you need to be able to get a bank account. And, you know, I was trying to get a birth certificate for a woman last week and she didn't have the 20 bucks to get it from the state. So uh, it's again, it's that kind of up close work that makes you go like, oh, it's not as simple as just saying like, well, go get your birth certificate. You need the money to do it. Um, so the, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there, I think. It's fascinating, Lisa, you described the imbrication of these topics, which I think individually one may be aware of. I mean, certainly, um, you know, being born and raised in Florida, I've been following the, the conversation there and what is effectively a, a new form of poll tax, basically, right? So populations who have been, you know, disproportionately exactly. people of color have been incarcerated for, you know, minor nonviolent offenses and, and then come out owing prison debt as a category and they can only get back their franchise in the context of very, you know, contested um, uh, kind of polling through, through the paying of these things. And it's, it's fascinating to, to understand how you connect the dots, as it were, and find the imbrication, the kind of connective tissue of these um, topics. So, so I, I do want to ask you, um, in the time that we have left, about this nature of field work. You know, in, 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 in our work in, in landscape architecture, we're often discussing work in the field. How do we go into the field? My colleague, Gareth Doherty, at the uh, Graduate School of Design has been doing a kind of ethnographic-based field work over the course of his career. And that's a topic that seems to be, um, you know, on the, on the rise in the conversations that we have, at least uh, in the circles that I travel. So I wonder if you could say more about um, the role of ethnographic or anthropological you know, methodologies, are they relevant here or are you just talking to folks? Is it just being a human being and talking to people uh, and am I making you know, more of that than needs to be? Well, I think there's, a, there's always a method, right? So uh, I think perhaps one of the differences between say the kind of research I do and a journalist is that um, I make sure that I have enough people that I'm talking to to really draw a conclusion that I feel I can stand behind and enough different kinds of people, or if I don't, you know, um, so for example, you know, I'm pretty sure that I was not at a typical check casher and payday lender. They were typical in some ways, but they had to be atypical enough to allow some pesky researcher to come and work for them. And not everybody would have done that. So you got to, you know, you have to look at the findings through these lenses of how is my work compromised? And I think one of the things we're trained to do as academics and that we need to train the 
folks who are getting professional degrees with us, the landscape architects and planners, et cetera, to also recognize those limitations. Um, uh, so, so there's that of kind of talking to enough people. I think also, you know, you may not be doing research. That might not be the work that you're doing, but hopefully as any kind of designer or, or professional or design professions, you are trying to understand communities and you are often going into or doing work for communities that may look and feel very different from communities that you've lived in or spent time in. And so one of the things I talk to our students a lot about is, you know, we're, we're building up this set of hard skills, you know, how to draw, how to use GIS, how to look at census data, et cetera. Um, but understanding how do you then match your skills with the lived experience and the knowledge that's, that's in a place within a group of people that you're de designing and planning for. And I think it often takes more time than we allow for. Um, you have to build trust, you know, and certainly I can speak for Penn. We haven't always had the best relationship with the communities. I don't know how it is at Harvard, but, you know, there have been, Penn has, has done some not so great things in the neighborhoods around the institution and has a different kind of reputation in, in different neighborhoods. And so as someone who teaches community development, um, and I teach a practicum course with our students, you know, we're really intentional about how we go in, how we talk to people. We often work through a local community-based organization that has the trust of people already. In fact, that's often how I do my research too. In this case, with getting in through a payday lender and a check casher where people had trust, but oftentimes when I'm not doing this deeply ethnographic work, it's finding a, a place like this reentry organization that I'm working in now, and I, I'm there every week for a couple of hours. And so, you know, I notice over time that the women who did not want to sit with me and get their credit report um, are now saying like, hey, can you help me with this? Or can we, can we look at that? So I think patience is a patience, humility, recognizing that you, um, that there's so much knowledge, local knowledge, um, you know, that, that, that you need to learn in order to do, in order to do good work. Um, and I think there, we often don't build in enough time to do those things, which is why even in my class, I go back to the same neighborhoods over and over again so that we build trust like that. But the work takes a long time. I mean, I was really taken by your kind of acknowledgement that, you know, many of the truths that you got to, many of the understandings you developed in the, in, in the book, um, you couldn't have gotten that through interviews alone. It would, you know, if you were to simply ask people about their lives and, and the precarity and the, the ways of getting by, the ways of making do, it was being there and witnessing and somehow being behind the bulletproof glass, as it were, gave you that window to be able to see how people were, were getting by. And um, in that regard, I'm interested to know, um, um, you know, where do you see your work going next? Like what, what you've been mentioning this reentry project, we will look forward mm -hmm. to the Lisa Servan bail bonds person opening up soon. <laughs> We've got a West Philly institution that we can look forward to. Maybe we'll see. I'd be happy. Um, yeah. to, I'd, be hap I'd be happy to be on the ground floor helping to support that. I can tell you. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's where I'm, I'm digging deep. And for me, uh, you know, I don't know, this is maybe a curse uh, the, the bad side of what I mentioned before about like getting up and answering the question you want to answer is that I tend to jump um, from thing to thing with, you know, whereas some people stay more in one lane. 
but it's interesting, the, the way that I got into this work, since you asked at the beginning, how did I get into the work on financial services was I was asked to give a, a talk at a maximum security men's prison outside of St. Louis on this book. And at first I thought like, why would these men who are locked up for decades gonna be interested in what I have to say about banks? Like they're not transacting, they're not on the internet. Uh, and I went, because um, I was intrigued and they were so engaged and had so many questions and it made me realize things like they couldn't get their credit scores or they didn't know how much they owed in terms of student loan debt from before they were locked up. Uh, and so that's what set me on this path. Um, so there was a connection, you know, it was the book that um, on the past research that connected me to the work that I'm doing now. And yeah, I think that um, I think it will be because I can't, um, I, I do intend to try to do some work in the prisons more as, you know, somebody going in and doing this financial literacy work. Uh, it's a little challenging right now because of COVID. But I think the way that I intend to keep doing it is to try to get all facets too. So I've been doing courtroom observations, working with these women, just trying to sort of get the perspectives on the system from a variety of angles. So we'll see. It's partly instinct where one question leads to another and I realize, oh, now I have to go do this in order to understand this new question that came up. Lisa Servant, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.